When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the world of political podcasts, there are experts, there are pundits, and then there's Tom Powell. Happy Friday, and welcome to another episode of the Second Half Podcast with Tom Powell. Remember, remember, if you're listening to this, that means you made it through another week, and margaritas are in order. And now your host, Tom Powell. All right, welcome back in, folks. <clears throat> As you heard the man in the intro say, this is the Second Half Podcast, and I'm Tom Powell. And this is the point in the show where I give you a reason to go get those margaritas that the man in the intro said, but I, I don't have one. I, I don't uh, have a reason other than it's Friday, and you might need to drink. It has been an absolute shit week. And unfortunately, I think that's going to continue for a short period of time. Um, I I am trying to not make it a shit week, a shit month, a shit year. Well, it's already been a shit year. You know what I mean? 2023 overall has sucked. So maybe that's why you should go get yourself some margaritas, you know? Just, Just because 2023 has been that fucking bad. Um... On top of everything costing way more than it should. On top of inflation, because companies are greedy as fuck and want to make as much profit as fuck. Uh, as you know, my my sister-in-law passed away suddenly at the age of 44 this year. My wife, unfortunately, found a new job, and it fucking blows. And it... The year just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and fucking worse. So, I don't have a good reason for you to go get margaritas other than you're a grown-ass adult. It's Friday and maybe you want some fucking margaritas. So, go get some fucking margaritas. You know what I mean? Uh, Who knows? Hopefully 2024 will be better. Although, with no job prospects for my wife on the horizon and... One of our drivers having a ban that we don't know if it's going to get lifted or stay in place at one of the facilities he needs to go to. Who the fuck knows what 2024 is going to bring. Plus the presidential election. Uh, it might be 2025 before things look even remotely fucking better. But let's hope to God it doesn't take that long to turn some of this shit around. All right. Sorry for such a down beginning to the podcast, but I am in just a dog shit mood all week, so you get dog shit time on Friday, unfortunately. Um, Before we get into the news stories of the week, as always, I would like to remind you to swing by my website, which is oldhippymedia.com. That's oldhippie, H-I-P-P-I-E media.com so many people think that that hippie is h-i-p-p-y it's not anyway 
at that website, you're going to find almost anything you want to know about me, including links on where you can buy my books. I am a self-published author. Uh, I have two books available in paperback and ebook format at that website. Uh, you can find a link to my other podcast. I do this podcast for free, but I have a podcast on Patreon where I interview people about their life experiences and projects they have coming up and things of that nature. Uh, that's called Off Topic with Tom Powell. You can find a link to my store. I have over 400 items to choose from. Links on where you can follow me on all the various social media sites. Links to other podcasts I've appeared on, articles I've been in. Uh, you can find uh, my blog uh, articles. I put a new one up every Wednesday, or at least I try to. Uh, as well as links on how you can contact me, book me, or support me in general. Once again, that is all found at oldhippymedia.com. Uh, moving into the football, uh, if you are new to this podcast, I do a football uh, pick segment during the football season. I try to make it as brief as humanly possible, and this one's going to be extraordinarily brief. I went 7-5 and five last week with my picks, bringing my season record to 105-76. and 76. I have no notes from last week's games, so I'm just going to go ahead and give you this week's winners. Of course, as always, excluding the Thursday game. This week's winners will be the Falcons, Ravens, Lions, Colts, Browns, Saints, Texans, Vikings, 49ers, Chiefs, Chargers, Eagles, Dolphins, and Packers. So there are your uh, NFL picks sure to go wrong this week. Don't go bet money with them, because if you do, you're a fucking idiot. All right, moving on. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor has died. Now, if you guys don't know who Sandra Day O'Connor is, she was the first woman to sit on the Supreme Court, and she has passed away at the age of 93. I'm going to read to you now from AP News. Retired Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, an unwavering voice of moderate conservatism and the first woman to serve on the nation's highest court, died Friday. She was 93. O'Connor died in Phoenix of complications related to advanced dementia and a respiratory illness, the Supreme Court said in a news release. Chief Justice John Roberts mourned her death. Quote, a daughter of the American Southwest, Sandra Day O'Connor blazed an historic trail as our nation's first female justice, Roberts said in a statement issued by the court. She met that challenge with undaunted determination, indisputable ability, and engaging candor, he went on to say. In 2018, she announced that she had been diagnosed with the beginning stages of dementia, probably Alzheimer's disease, a direct quote. Her husband, John O'Connor, died of complications of Alzheimer's in 2009. O'Connor's nomination in 1981 by President Ronald Reagan and subsequent confirmation by the Senate ended 191 years of male exclusivity on the high court. A native of Arizona who grew up on her family's sprawling ranch, O'Connor wasted little time building a reputation as a hard worker who wielded considerable political clout on the nine-member court. The granddaughter of a pioneer who traveled west from Vermont and founded the family ranch some three decades before Arizona became a state, 
O'Connor had a tremendous independent spirit that came naturally. As a child growing up in the remote outback, she learned early to ride horses, round up cattle, and drive trucks and tractors. I don't do all the things the boys did, she said in a 1981. I didn't do all the things the boys did, she said in a 1981 Time magazine interview, but I fixed windmills and repaired fences. On the bench, her influence could be seen, could best be seen, and her legal thinking most closely scrutinized in the court's rulings on abortion, perhaps the most contentious and divisive issues the justices faced. O'Connor balked at letting states outlaw most abortions, refusing in 1989 to join four other justices who were ready to reverse the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that said women have a constitutional right to abortion. Then, in 1992, she helped forge and lead a five-justice majority that reaffirmed the core holding of the 1973 ruling. Some of us as individuals find abortion offensive to our most basic principles of morality, but that cannot control our decision, O'Connor said in court, reading a summary of the decision in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Our obligation is to define the liberty of all, not to mandate our own moral code. Thirty years after that decision, a more conservative court did overturn Roe and Casey, and the opinion was written by the man who took her uh, uh, high court seat, Justice Samuel Alito. He joined the court upon O'Connor's retirement in 06, chosen by President George W. Bush. In 2000, O'Connor was part of the 5-4 majority that effectively resolved the disputed 2000 presidential election in favor of Bush over Democrat Al Gore. Bush was among many prominent Americans offering condolences Friday, Quote, it was fitting that Sandra became the first female appointed to the highest court because she was a pioneer who lived by the code of the West, Bush said in a statement. She was determined and honest, modest and considerate, dependable and self-reliant. She was also fun and funny with a wonderful sense of humor. Former President Barack Obama, who awarded O'Connor the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2009, praised her for, quote, forging a new path and building a bridge behind her for all young women to follow, end quote. O'Connor was regarded with great fondness by many of her colleagues. When she retired, Justice Clarence Thomas, a conservative, uh, consistent conservative, called her an outstanding colleague, civil in dissent, and gracious when in the majority. The fact of the matter is that Sandra Day O'Connor was an extraordinarily rare type of justice in that she could find a reason to side with both the conservative and the liberal side of a given issue. And while she was a conservative, as you heard me read, she was a conservative who believed that her own moral compass was not something that she should put on the rest of the country. Very much like the current president we have, Joe Biden, who's a devout Catholic and is extraordinarily anti-abortion, but does not believe that his position is the one that should be foistered upon the rest of the American people. That the American people have the right and the ability to make their own decisions in a truly free and just society. She was as you read, a pioneer, she was an innovator, and she was the woman who broke the glass ceiling on the nation's highest court. And as such, 
the world is a much lesser place now that she's not in it. Well, I don't believe in an afterlife. I don't believe a heaven and a hell and a soul and all of that stuff. I do wish to say, rest in peace, Justice O'Connor. Because she was a true original. She was also not the uh, only prominent name to have passed away in the last week. We also lost Norman Lear, who died at the age of 101. An absolute legend in the entertainment industry. I'm going to read to you now from ABC News. Norman Lear, one of the most prolific producers in television history, has died. He was 101 years old. Quote, Quote, Norman lived a life of curiosity, tenacity, and empathy, his family said in a statement. He deeply loved our country and spent a lifetime helping to preserve its founding ideals of justice and equality for all. He began his career in the earliest days of live television and discovered a passion for writing about the real lives of American, not a glossy ideal. End quote. Born in New Haven, Connecticut, Lear dropped out of Boston's Emerson College in 1942 to join the military, serving in the Mediterranean Theater in World War II as a B-17 radio operator and gunner. He flew 52 combat missions, for which he was awarded the Air Medal with a four oak leaf cluster. Lear was discharged from the Army, and in 1950, his television career began when he and his writing partner, Ed Simmons, got a job writing for the Ford Star Review. But after just four shows, Jerry Lewis snatched up the duo to write for him and Dean Martin on the Colgate Comedy Hour. Lear also wrote for the big screen, snagging an Academy Award nomination for uh, in 1967 for Divorce American Style. However, 1970s television belonged to Lear beginning with the debut in 1971 of All in the Family. The sitcom was groundbreaking in what would become a Lear trademark, using comedy to examine hot-button issues like race relations, the war in Vietnam, abortion, gay rights, and even rape. As Archie Bunker, a cantankerous, bigoted World War II veteran, Carol O'Connor clashed weekly with Rob Reiner as his on-screen liberal son-in-law, Mike Meathead Stivick. One of the secrets of the show's success, experts have said, was that each side of the political divide has someone to cheer for. All in the Family earned Lear a shelf full of awards, including four Emmys for Best Comedy Series, as well as the Peabody Award in 1977. All in the Family led to spinoffs Maud, The Jeffersons, as well as Archie Bunker's Place and the short-lived Gloria, starring all in the family's Sally Struthers, a.k.a. Or, AKA Gloria Stivick, as a now single mom. Maud starred B. Arthur as Maud Finley, Edith Bunker's cousin, who clashed with Archie on the occasions she visited 704 Hauser Street. The spinoff continued the Lear tradition of infusing social com- commentary into sitcom format. In one much-talked-about episode, Arthur's character debates the fate of an accidental pregnancy. Ultimately, she decided to get an abortion. The Jeffersons settled on the Bunker's African-American neighbors after they moved on up from Queens to the east side. 
like Bunker, Sherman Hemsley's equally hard-headed self, uh, self-made man, George Jefferson, clashed with his more progressive son, Lionel, in a world that was changing around him. In 1974, Lear created Good Times about an African-American family in Chicago. That series tackled issues like poverty, drug use, and inner-city crime. Lear's Midas Touch also brought a British import, Steptoe and Son, here titled Sanford and Son, starring comic Red Fox, to further small-screen success. One year later, Lear's One Day at a Time sympathetically examined the lives of a divorced single mother raising two teenage daughters while attempting to make ends meet in Indianapolis. Less successful but critically acclaimed was Lear's 1976 satirical soap sitcom, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Lear was also an activist and in 1980 created the nonprofit People for the American Way, which was dedicated to supporting the Bill of Rights and to monitor violations of constitutional freedoms. According to his personal website, Lear also founded the nonprofit charity business enterprise Trust and the Environment Media Association, designed to get the entertainment industry more green. In 1999, President Bill Clinton presented Lear with the National Medal of Arts, declaring, Norman Lear has held up a mirror to American society and changed the way we looked at it. Still thriving as he approached 100, Lear in recent years shepherded both a Latina-led remake of One Day at a Time for Netflix and successful star-studded promotions productions of both All in the Family and The Jeffersons on ABC's well-received Live from a Studio Audience specials. He also hosted a podcast titled All of the Above with Norman Lear. Lear won a total of six Emmy Awards out of a career total 19 nominations. He also won two Peabody Awards and was inducted into the Television Hall of Fame in 1984. In 2017, Lear was a recipient of the Kennedy Center Honors. Married three times, Lear was survived by his wife Lynn and his six children, Ellen, Kate, Maggie, Benjamin, Brianna, and Madeline, as well as grandchildren Daniel, Noah, Griffin, and Zoe. When I tell you that he is a legend in the entertainment world, think about the shows that this man made and the impact that uh, those shows had on American culture and the things that he showed on TV that at the time were never shown on TV because they were forbidden. They were, they were taboo. There was, was stuff you didn't talk about. When former President Bill Clinton said that he, uh, Lear, held a mirror up to American society and made us look at it a different way. That is spot on accurate. He took what we do now on TikTok in 60 second to three minute videos talking about the various social and cultural cultural issues in the country and he put them in the sitcom format for the whole world to see and they became the biggest shows in the world for that time. So, so why did a bunch of shows dealing with a bunch of controversial con, uh, uh, um, concepts and subjects uh, showing things that have never been shown on TV before become such a big hit? Because it was real. 
because what he was showing you was the reality of human nature, the reality of human beings, the reality of the American culture. And therefore, when people tuned in, they didn't see something like, like when I was growing up, we had like the Cosby show, right? I'm not saying that the Cosby show wasn't real. I'm saying that you got two extraordinarily successful parents, uh, extraordinarily successful kids, a beautiful house, you know, it just not what the 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 masses of the of the country see on a day-to-day basis but then you turn into shows that norman lear made like all in the family like sanford and son like uh good times good times was a huge example of norman lear spotlighting things that are just never shown it, this if you've never seen good times it is a black family that lives in the projects in chicago something that you, you still don't see a ton of on tv these days but for the 70s was unheard of and norman lear will be greatly missed He has certainly left his mark on the entertainment industry, and what he did and what he created will live forever. Rest in peace, Mr. Lear. Now, on to some political news, which is what I typically cover here. Uh, Nearly two dozen states will raise their minimum wage starting on January 1st. I'm going to read to you now from CNN, and every now and again I like to include a CNN article just to piss off the Trumpers who are listening, because I know that they all have a very big problem with CNN. So, if you're a Trumper who's listening to this, fuck you, I hope that made you cry, you ignorant bucket of dog shit. At the start of the new year, anyone working... Sorry, I'm getting breaking news. 199,000 jobs added in the month of November. Anyway, we'll talk about that next week. Maybe. At the start of the new year, anyone anyone working a minimum wage job will be paid more in 22 states and in at least 40 cities and counties across the country. The higher hourly rates are due to either the scheduled increases or lawmakers having indexed the minimum wage in their jurisdictions to inflation, most typically using the Consumer Price Index as their gauge. Come January 1, seven states in the District of Columbia will have minimum wages of $15 or more, up from just four states plus D.C. this year. The newcomers to the category are Maryland, New Jersey, and most of New York State, with the exception of New York City, Westchester, and Long Island, which already have a $15 minimum wage in place, and where the minimum wage will increase to $16 this year. The highest minimum wage in 2024 will be in Washington State at $16.28, up from $15.74 currently. A close second is California, which is raising its minimum wage from $16 or to $16 from $15.50 today. The state with the biggest jump in minimum wage next year will be Hawaii which is hiking it by $2. January 1 isn't the only day minimum wage will go up. Some states, such as Nevada and Oregon, Nevada and Oregon, have increases set for July 1. 
Florida's minimum wage will go up on September 30th. States' minimum wage rates are often eclipsed by those in many of their own cities and counties. Take the city of Tukwila, Washington, just south of Seattle. Its minimum wage will hit $20.29 in January, up from $18.99 now. At that level, it will have the highest standard minimum wage rate in the country among states, counties, and cities as of Jan 1, said Jana Bjorklund, Senior Counsel and Director of Employment Law and Compliances at GovDocs, a compliance software provider for large multi-jurisdictional employers. Seattle, which will have a rate of $19.97, won't be far behind. Next year, at least 40 cities and counties are hiking their minimum wages, according to GovDocs. They include Flagstaff, Arizona, which is going to $17.40, Mountain View, California, which is going to $18.85, Denver, Colorado, which is going to $18.29, and Portland, Maine, which is going to $15. And in some states, there are big sector-specific wage hikes on tap. In California, for instance, starting in April, fast food, fast food workers must be paid at least $20 an hour, and on June 1, healthcare workers will start, will start earning between $18 and $23 an hour, depending on their role and the size of the company, uh, the size and type of employer they work for, an hourly rate that will eventually reach $25 an hour. In New York City, app-based restaurant delivery workers... Uh, people like Uber, Grubhub, DoorDash, things of that nature, must now be paid a minimum hourly rate of $17.96, which is set to increase to nineteen ninety six by 2025. The federal minimum wage has been stuck at $7.25 since 2009. And 20 states, including Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Alabama, and Mississippi, still adhere to it. The push to raise it has gone on for years because minimum wage workers stuck at $7.25 has lo- have lost substantial buying power. Had it just been adjusted for inflation since 2009, it would be $10.33 today. But advocates for a higher minimum wage, including Hi- Holly Sklar, CEO of Business and Fair Minimum Wage, would rather see it adjusted for inflation from where it was in 1968. The wage then was $1.60, which in today's dollars would be $14.39. That $1.60 provided minimum wage workers with their greatest purchasing power, Sklar said. Every minimum wage increase since 1968 has been too little too late. Full-time jobs used to keep people out of poverty, she said. She points to MIT's living wage calculator to access what a single person without kids would have to earn per hour just to cover the cost of basic needs, like food, housing, transportation, and medical care. For example, in Mississippi, where the minimum wage is just $7.25, a person would have to earn $15.30 an hour in Pike County just to pay for basic needs. But among child care workers, fast food cooks, and cashiers in the state, the median wage, meaning half of the people in those jobs earn less, ranges between $9.83 and $10.17 an hour, Sklar noted. Given how little movement there has been at the federal level to raise the country's minimum wage sufficiently, she expects states and local jurisdictions will continue to do the heavy lifting. 
and she believes the economy case, economic case for their increases is there for both workers and employers. For workers, of course, it eases the burden, uh, but people replace tires they couldn't replace or get their kids' clothes, she said. For businesses, she said, consumer spending goes up because minimum wage workers will spend their additional earnings quickly, and among other things, it will help boost retention of one's workers because they won't be as quick to quit for another 25 cents an hour. Less turnover, in turn, can reduce an employer's hiring and training costs, among other benefits. It's a virtuous cycle, Sklar said. When talking about the federal minimum wage, I want you to think about where it is right now at seven dollars and twenty-five cents an hour. Seven twenty-five an hour. Seven twenty-five. That is nothing. As a matter of fact, uh, sorry. That comes to $290 a week before taxes for a 40-hour work week. $290 a week before taxes. $1160 a month before taxes. You're talking $15,000 a year. How in the hell... Can we expect anyone, anywhere in this country, to live off of $7.25? Now, you're going to have the detractors of raising the minimum wage say, well, it wasn't meant to be a living wage, but it was meant to be a living wage. When When it was first instituted, it was meant to create a basic standard of living for the lowest paid American workers, American employees in the country. It was meant to be something that was going to give just a basic ability to survive in this country. And we, as a nation, have failed to keep up with that promise to the American workers. And as a result, we have people that are out there working two to three jobs and are still on government assistance because they cannot make enough money to survive. Raising the federal minimum wage is long past overdue and $15 an hour is no longer the target in my opinion. We've been arguing over a $15 an hour minimum wage for 40 fucking years. So 20 at a minimum, uh, 20 years at a minimum I should say. The fact that Congress gets to vote on its own pay raise whenever it wants to but has not increased the federal minimum wage for years and years and years is an absolutely disgusting indictment on our political uh, system and our political quote-unquote leaders. $7.25 an hour is not enough. It just isn't. And at least... The towns, municipalities, counties, cities, and states are taking some of the power themselves to do what is right for the people that live there. And oh, by the way, all of those places that already have $15 an hour minimum wage, guess what's not happening? 
it's not causing the the economy to collapse under its own weight in those areas right a hamburger doesn't cost $37 a shake doesn't cost $14 you can survive you can live and people can actually afford to live on what they earn rather than what they earn plus government subsidies. And this is what really pisses me off about the people who are against raising the minimum wage. They know that the people who are making minimum wage have to be on government subsidies subsidies in order to survive. They know it. Yet they're opposed to giving them government subsidies as well. So they're opposed to making sure that they have a livable wage when for working a 40-hour work week. And they're opposed to giving them uh, government assistance to make up the difference from the money they can't make working a 40-hour work week. So their answer is literally, fuck you, starve to death. That is grotesque. And if you're one of those conservatives out there that are like, fuck you, starve to death, the people that are working 40 hours, I'm not talking about some fucking 16-year-old who's working 18 hours in a McDonald's. I'm talking about looking at the people who are working in these jobs, trying to put a roof over a family's head, which is becoming more and more uh, the norm in these minimum wage jobs, because so many jobs... Are, are, are paying minimum wage in order to save a buck. I, we got to fix the system. And, and this is not the way it should be fixed by states, cities, and counties having to do it themselves. We should be doing it on the federal level. People in Alabama should be able to make more than $7.25 an hour. And I get that it costs less to live in Alabama than it does in California. I get that it costs less to live in, you know, Tofungus, Missouri, than it does in San Francisco, uh, California. So we should have some type of scale that maybe looks at the cost of living per state and adjusts the minimum wage on a state-by-state basis to fall in line in accordance with the highest cost of living in that state. But Jesus fucking Christ, we got to do something. Because here's the bottom line. What we're doing ain't working. It's not. We got too many people on government assistance because they can't afford to earn enough money working a full-time job. And it's costing you and I money in the form of our tax dollars to help supplement these people while they're already working a full-time job. How about we just make it so that the full-time job that they're working pays them enough? I mean, is there not some dignity that comes with working for your paycheck, being able to pay for your own way? Of course there is. But how can you obtain that dignity when what you're doing is working a full-time job and still having to go to the government and go, but I didn't make enough. I need, I need you to cover the balance. We got to fix it, folks. And I, I just don't know when it's going to get fixed. Oh, nine. Nobody's gotten a raise since Oh, nine. We are broken. We really are. But we can fix some of our mistakes, as it is shown in an example in our next story, which is George Santos has been expelled from Congress. (laughs) I'm going to read to you now from BBC. 
yes, and that is the British Broadcasting Company. Uh, and I believe that's the what the C stands for. It's not Big Black Cock for everybody that is always wondering when I say BBC. It's the news organization, not the genitalia, okay? Now, from BBC, quote, To hell with this place, Mr. Santos, uh, Santos told reporters as he left the Capitol. The New York Republican is only the sixth lawmaker in history to be removed from the lower chamber of Congress and the first since 2002. His tenure was marked by multiple lies about his past and allegations of fraud, all revealed after his election. Friday's was the third attempt to oust Mr. Santos after two previous votes failed. The 35-year-old from Queens made a quick exit from the Capitol before the vote ended, as its outcome became clear, rushing past a swarm of reporters and into a waiting uh, SUV. As unofficially already no longer a member of Congress, I no longer have to answer a single question from you guys, he said. Lawmakers backed the expulsion resolution 311 to 114, with 206 Democrats and 105 Republicans voting in favor of expelling Santos. Scattered applause was heard through the House chamber after the measure was adopted. Mr. Santos later said he would uh, file on Monday an ethics complaint against several of his House colleagues over what he argued were campaign finance violations and questionable stock uh, trading. Over 11 months in office, Mr. Santos faced an endless stream of controversy and countless calls to resign from members of both parties. His troubles began shortly after winning the election uh, to the House in November of 2022 when the New York Times reported, reported that he had lied about a Wall Street career, his college degrees, and having Jewish ancestry. Since then, the allegations have only piled up. He has been accused of a range of fabrications, from scamming Amish dog breeders in Pennsylvania to claiming his mother died in the 9-11 attacks. In May, he was charged with 23 felonies, including wire fraud, money laundering, and theft of public funds. He denies the allegations and is waiting, awaiting trial. But the final blow came last month when the House Ethics Committee found he had exploited, quote, every aspect of his House candidacy for his own personal financial profit. Among its many allegations, the panel accused him of spending campaign money on Botox treatments, credit card debt, OnlyFans accounts, and trips to the Hamptons Seaside Enclave in New York. Two previous efforts to remove Mr. Santos failed after some lawmakers argued it would set a bad precedent to remove someone who had not been convicted of crimes or tried in a court of law. Jim Jordan, a Republican who voted against the expulsion, told BBC he worried who's next. The voters elected him, he said. You've got to be careful in uh, taking a vote to kick out of Congress someone the voters sent to Congress, he said. A group of four New York Republicans, all elected alongside Mr. Santos, had been trying to get him ousted. The precedent that is set is that we hold members of Congress to a higher standard, said one, Anthony D'Esposito. It shouldn't have come to this, he added. He should have held himself accountable. He should have resigned. In the days after the release of the Ethics Committee's reports, Mr. Santos had refused to quit, slamming colleagues online and daring them to remove him. This place is run on hypocrisy, he told reporters earlier this week. If they want to make me leave Congress, they're going to have to take the tough vote. 
Constituents in his district welcomed the news, with one saying only good riddance when asked for their reaction. Jody Casfinkel, who campaigned to have Mr. Santos removed, told the BBC his expulsion was a win for democracy. We knew this was the only way to go because this man has no shame and he was not going to resign on his own, she said. As soon as the vote was gaveled out, Mr. Santos officially became a former member of Congress. His official website was taken down, his staff phones now go to a generic voicemail, and the name played outside his office where some people stopped by to take selfies on Friday was removed. A sign attached to the doorway says, yes, we're open, but there were no signs of life inside except for a staffer who briefly exited to pick up flowers left at the entrance. The New Yorker no longer has the ability to vote on legislation or to rely on his government health benefits and is not eligible for congressional legislative pension. He can still dine, however, in the exclusive house restaurant, exercise in the Capitol gym, or borrow books from the Library of Congress, Congress, all privileges afforded to former members of Congress. New York Governor Kathy Hochul has 10 days to call for an election, which will likely take place next February. With the Republican House majority shaved to just eight seats, Democrats have a good shot of filling the vacancy. It caps a stunning downfall of a man who scored an upset victory in a Democrat-leaning district and became the first openly gay Republican elected to Congress. With a federal fraud trial looming next year, some have speculated he will sign a plea deal with the prosecutors to avoid prison time, as he did with a case in his native Brazil earlier this year. If not, he faces a maximum penalty of 20 years behind bars. Not only is this man going to cut a plea deal, but he is going to throw every single fucking Republican member of the House who voted against him under the bus in the process. He's going to take every dirty secret he ever learned in the 11 months that he was in Congress, and he is going to spill them. And I am here for all of it. I love the fact that he's out. I love the fact that he's going to uh, take vengeance out on the people who always, who uh, 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 ousted him from Congress. And I love the fact that we're going to see some dirty laundry on some of these Republicans as we head into an election year next year. But more importantly, I love the fact that Republicans' already narrow majority in the House has now been cut and most likely will be filled, uh, that seat will be filled by a Democrat, which means not only did Republicans lose one seat in their seat majority, Democrats will gain ground on them. So what is already a paper-thin majority where uh, the House Speaker can only afford to lose four Republican votes, five Republican votes, has lost another vote that it can't afford to lose. I think it was four. Now that's down to three. But here's the kicker. That is soon going to be down to two because former Speaker of the House McCarthy has announced he is going to resign at the end of the month. He's not waiting for the next election. He's not waiting for anything. He's going to resign now and stick it to the Republicans who kicked him out of his speakership. I'm going to read to you now. Excuse me, I have to wet my whistle. I'm going to read to you now from NPR. Former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, says he will retire from the House of Representatives at the end of this year, departing before the end of his term. McCarthy announced his plans in an essay published in the Wall Street Journal. Quote, 
No matter the odds or personal cost, we did the right thing, McCarthy wrote. That may seem out of fashion in Washington these days, but delivering results for the American people is still celebrated across the country. It is in this spirit that I have decided to depart the House at the end of uh, this year to serve America in new ways. I know my work is only getting started. End quote. McCarthy was removed as Speaker earlier this year in a rear vote uh, of the House on a motion to vacate the chair. His ouster led to a three-week debacle where Washington was paralyzed as the House was unable to function as the Republican conference struggled to reach consensus on a new leader. With McCarthy's resignation, resignation and the recent ouster of Representative George Santos that I just told you about, Speaker Mike Johnson's wafer-thin majority continues to shrink. Republicans will have just a three-vote majority to pass key legislation after McCarthy's departure, including two government funding deadlines. New York Governor Kathy Kathy Hochul has announced Tuesday that the state will hold a special election to fill Santos's seat on February 13, 2024. California will also need to hold a special election to replace McCarthy, a process that could take weeks. The vax the the vacancies put huge pressure on House leaders who already struggled to pass partisan legislation with key appropriation bills either failing or being pulled from consideration because of a lack of GOP support. The fractious nature of the conference forced Johnson, after days of searching for an alternative, to rely on Democratic votes to keep the government funded through the new year, frustrating hardliners and mirroring, mirroring the decision that cost McCarthy his speakership. Now, unless Republicans, sorry, I heard something outside my door. Now, unless Republicans manage to overcome their so far intractable differences, McCarthy's departure could force Johnson to yet again rely on Democrats to advance must-pass legislation. Congress must approve new spending authority twice in the coming months. The first deadline is just over six weeks away when the first set of funding bills run out on January 19th. The remaining spending bills run out on February 2nd. So, this is what I was talking about at the end of the George Santos thing. With McCarthy being out and Santos being out, the new Speaker of the House does not have any wiggle room at all. He can afford to lose three votes. Uh, three Republican votes, and then he's got to get Democrats on board for anything, which means if the government is going to stay open, it's going to stay open because Democrats voted for it. And Democrats are only going to vote for something to keep the government open if it's not an extremist agenda, which is what the far right wing MAGA uh, uh, portion of the Republican Party has been trying to pass. They want to slash everything. They want to shut down this department, shut down that department, slash this person's budget to a dollar. It's all just extremist bullshit. Nothing about keeping the government open and working for the American people. You know, like they were elected to do. No, that that would be that would be too much like doing your fucking job. No, new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, is definitely caught between a rock and a hard place. And I believe his tenure as Speaker of the House is going to be extraordinarily short-lived because the dysfunction in the House caucus, uh, the House Republican caucus, is, I believe, going to cost them in the next election. And I think that uh, in 2025, after Democrats win the House, which 
is only a possibility. Keep in mind, Republicans can still retain the House. The House is the most gerrymandered and rigged of the two chambers, right? Senate seats are statewide. Congressional seats are by district. Districts are drawn to be favorable to people to get elected. And there's a strong possibility the Republicans could keep the House. I think the Democrats are going to take the House, which means in 2025 we could be very well be looking at um, uh, Speaker of the House, Hakeem Jeffries, which has got to be better than Mike Johnson, who is a far-right-wing extremist loon. I've done some stories on him here on the podcast, and I'm going to tell you another one here now. I'm going to read to you uh, this story from ABC7 News because, in my opinion, this is an example of the Speaker of the House aiding and abetting domestic terrorists in this country. From ABC7 News, House Speaker Mike Johnson said Tuesday he was blurring the complete surveillance footage from the January 6th attacks on the U.S. Capitol in order to protect participants from being charged by law enforcement, a statement soon reversed by a spokesman. Quote, we have to blur some of the faces of persons who participated in the event on that day because we don't want them to be retaliated against and to be charged by the DOJ and to have other, you know, concerns and problems. Johnson, who joined the Republican, uh, joined some other Republicans in seeking to overturn Trump's 2020 election defeat, said at a press conference. Let me just read that again. This is the Speaker of the House talking about releasing the uh, uh, the remaining surveillance footage of what happened on January 6th, which was a domestic terrorist attack on our nation's capital in an attempt to overturn the 2020 election kill the line of succession, and install a dictator over the will of the people. Okay, He said, we have to blur some of the faces of the persons who participated in the event of that day because we don't want them to be retaliated against and to be charged by the GOJ and to have other, you know, concerns and problems. So you're blurring the faces of domestic terrorists that the DOJ can't identify them and charge them properly? It's an interesting position to take, especially as Speaker of the House. In a statement issued on social media soon after, however, spokesman Raj Shah wrote, Faces are to be blurred from public viewing room footage to prevent all forms of retaliation against private citizens from any non-governmental actors. The Department of Justice already has access to raw footage from January 6, 2021. Interesting. Indeed, federal investigators have possessed the blurred footage from that day for nearly three years and have used it to help identify suspects in the riot, sometimes with the public's help. To date, more than 1,200 people have been charged in connection with January 6th, including 117 people who have been accused of using deadly, a deadly or dangerous weapon or causing serious bodily injury to a police officer, according to the DOJ. This is the most wide-ranging investigation and most important investigation that the Justice Department has ever entered into, and we have done so because this effort to upend a legitimate election, transferring power from one administration to another, cuts at the fundamental cuts at the fundamental of American democracy. Attorney General Merrick Garland said in 2022, 
However, the January 6th security tapes have also become of increasing interest in conservative circles. Because conservatives, not all, but the far right-wing Trumpers, still hold on to many different narratives about January 6th, one of which being that it wasn't an insurrection. Earlier this year, then-Fox News host Tucker Carlson used some of the surveillance footage released to him by then-Speaker Kevin McCarthy to try and play down the riots as peaceful. Capitol Police Police Chief Thomas Manger said in an internal memo at the time that Carlson's coverage of the tapes was, quote, filled with offensive and misleading conclusions. Former President Donald Trump has said suspects charged in January 6th are hostages, Speaking to reporters on Tuesday, Johnson emphasized that the release of tens of thousands of hours of Jan 6 security tapes was a critical and important exercise, and again said that sharing them publicly was about transparency. Quote, House Republicans trust the American people to draw their own conclusions, he said. We're going through a methodical process of releasing them as quickly as we can, he added. He said the process of blurring was slow, but we're working steadily on it. We've hired additional personnel to do that, and all of those tapes ultimately at the end will be out. Democrats have criticized the decision to release the full footage. In a statement last month, New York Representative Joe Morrell, the ranking member of the House Administration Committee, called the move unconscionable and said it would undermine the Capitol Police and politicize Capitol security. So why are Democrats opposed to releasing it? Well, a lot of the footage that is being released by now speaker, the, the new Speaker of the House, and some of the footage that was released by the previous Speaker of the House shows sensitive areas of the Capitol building that are not seen by the general public. It gives you an inside detail to our nation's Capitol, something you don't want terrorists to see by just flipping on their computer and being able to pull up a video that was released by the Speaker of the fucking House. But here's the thing. If this wasn't a big deal, if this wasn't a domestic terrorist attack, if it wasn't an insurrection, if they weren't trying to circumvent the the will of the American people by overturning a free and fair election and installing a dictator, then what would there be to retaliate against them for? What would be the reason to charge them? The fact of the matter is, the far right-wing Republicans, like Johnson, like this this new Speaker of the House, were part of the effort to overthrow our government. He was part of this. He has been pushing to overturn the 2020 election. He's part of the problem. He is a domestic terrorist sympathizer. So he needs to portray the events of January 6th as no big deal. What's there, what's there to, to get all ruffled up about? And see, so what they're showing is they're showing some of the interior footage, obviously, in sensitive areas of the Capitol building that show some of these insurrectionists walking around. Some trying to find their way to wherever, some just looking around. But at the end of the day, it's some of the people that got into the Capitol building and were caught on footage not rubbing feces on the wall or attacking a police officer because they already fucking did that outside. These people are releasing this footage acting as if we didn't all watch what happened live on TV. That that we we didn't all watch 
this attack unfold before our very eyes. And, and if it was no big deal, what was what would be the need for Trump to, to do a video from the White House saying, uh, go home peacefully, we want peace, just go home. What, what what would be the reason for that if it was no big deal? If it was just a if it was just a guided tour of the Capitol building. And no former President Donald Trump, the January 6th prisoners are not hostages. They're domestic terrorists. And to be completely honest with you, at a minimum, they should all be kicked out of this fucking country and lose their right to vote. At a maximum, some of these people should face the death penalty. And I'm not joking when I say that. There are people that attempted to kill Capitol Police officers, and were there to literally hang the Vice President and Speaker of the House at a minimum. And before any of you fucking Trump supporters come in here going, no, they weren't. They were fucking chanting, hang Mike Pence, as they were breaking through the windows of the Capitol building, while their cohorts were erecting a gallow on the lawn of the Capitol building. Yes, they were there to kill the Vice President, the Speaker of the House, and anybody else they could have gotten their hands on had they actually been able to get to the members of Congress. Every single person that participated in the January 6th insurrection is an enemy of this nation and does not deserve the freedom that they have in this country. Because they tried to take away our freedom. You January 6th insurrectionists tried to say that my vote doesn't matter because you lost the election. So therefore you were going to nullify my vote and the votes of the people in my orbit. So that you could get the outcome you wanted. Fuck you. Fuck everything you stand for. And fuck everything you will stand for. You're a domestic terrorist piece of shit, and if you support the uh, the efforts, the actions, the uh, the 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 actions, and 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 uh, I don't know what word I'm looking for there. I'm just so fucking pissed off about this entire fucking scenario. If you support the actions of the people at the Capitol building on January sixth, then you're a domestic terrorist piece of shit too. I have absolutely no fucking sympathy for you. And uh, I hope you lose every fucking election for the rest of your fucking life, you ignorant cocksucker. These people attacked our country. And I've said this over and over and over again, and I want everybody listening to this to imagine this for a minute. Imagine for a minute that in 2020 it was declared that Trump won the election. But Joe Biden held a rally in Washington, D.C. on January 6th and said the election was stolen from me and if we don't fight to take our country back, we won't have a country anymore. And then said we're going to march down to the Capitol building and we're going to fight for our country. We're going to take our country back. And then thousands of his followers walked down to the Capitol building and all of them did the exact same things that 
all of those January 6th Trump supporters did. Everything was exactly the same, only it was Biden giving the speech and Biden supporters listening to him and Biden supporters marching down to the Capitol and Biden supporters on the steps in the front and Biden supporters attacking the police officers and Biden supporters going into the the, the Capitol building, breaking through the windows, chanting, hang Mike Pence and building a gal. It, It was all exactly the same, only it was Biden supporters. It's a bunch of BLM protesters. Would you say it wasn't an insurrection then? Would you say it wasn't a domestic terrorist attack then? Or would you be demanding their fucking heads be put on pikes in front of the Capitol building? The fact that Mike Johnson is doing this shows that he is sympathetic to people who attack our nation. And this is the worst kind of sympathy, uh, sympathy to show for people who attack our nation. Because it's not like he's some foreign agent that's secretly hiding among us and trying to help some foreign power attack us. No, he is sympathetic to people attacking us from within. He is sympathetic to domestic terrorism. And we need to remember that come Election Day 2024. And we need to vote accordingly. Folks, that's all I got for you this week. I thank you very much for listening. I hope you tune in next week for an all-new episode of the Second Half Podcast. Hopefully, we'll have a better, I'll have a better week next week. We'll see. I don't know what next week is going to bring. Uh, but right now, we're in a funky spot, and things aren't very fucking good. So, having said all of that, tune in next week for a whole new episode, an an all-new episode of the Second Half Podcast. And until then, as always, stay grateful.